we're glad to be able to jump into God's word this morning. Mark chapter 11, as we continue to mark through, walk through uh, the gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, Mark chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And this is a text that, or a story that is found in all four of the Gospels. Uh, So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can find it. And and we'll kind of pull those together a little bit. We're going to obviously use Mark's Gospel as our foundation. uh, But we'll pull in a few of the things that we find out from the other Gospel stories as well uh, as we go through it. And so um, I know Charles just prayed, but I like to just kind of pray for us as we enter into God's Word. So let's pray together quickly. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning, our opportunity to, to gather together and to worship and, and to hear your word, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that you would speak through your word. We know you tell us that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it, it, it both draws us to you, it corrects us, it, it allows us to live and to walk in joy and happiness and fulfillment and purpose. And, and God, this morning, I pray that you would speak directly to each of us exactly where we are and the things that we're going through and, and the, the things that we're struggling with, the things that we're celebrating. God, would we be able to give glory and honor to you and would you give us clarity and wisdom in the things that we need to walk into in this life that you have granted us? And so God, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would just speak to us. I pray, Father, that your word would be clear. This is a beautiful, beautiful text. And so God, just speak to us this morning. We invite you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When we look at this passage, we're really looking at something that that every single one of us, or a couple of different things that every single one of us uh, really pursue in life. It's this idea of kingdoms and love. Kingdoms and love. These two things, every single one of us pursues in some way, and we really, more than anything else perhaps on and in our lives, Do we desire to build and to have, to have some sort of hope and some sort of desire for passion and life and and fulfillment and satisfaction? We look at kingdoms and love. And in general, we do this even from a very young age. And so I'm not trying to overgeneralize when I say this. I know that, that some girls are a little bit more what we would say are tomboyish and kind of lean towards sports and those different kinds of things and more the kingdom side. And some of the uh, men kind of have uh, more, they're more in touch with kind of the community and the relational aspect of life. And so I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but I'm just saying in general, and I'm going to give you a, a personal example. I have a six-year-old son. Uh, And just in general, he is all about this idea of kingdom. Uh, He wants to kind of build the castle, the fort, play with Legos. He wants to be the hero. He wants to conquer. He wants to bring dominion. He wants to bring peace to his imaginary land. Like he is just a boy and he just pursues those things. He's going to dress up like he's some sort of king or superhero or whatever it may be. That's just what he wants to do. It's what he thinks about. It's what he dreams about. It's every game that he plays. Um, On the other hand, I have two little girls and and they're a little bit older and kind of sadly growing out of this stage, or at least it's kind of materializing in a little bit of a different way. But when they were younger, uh, they wanted to be the princess. Uh, They wanted to wear the dress, and we had to have every Disney dress, and they ruined my house with glitter on multiple occasions, and and you just go everywhere with glitter all over you, and people are looking at you and laughing, and you just figure, there's glitter on my face somewhere, right? I mean, it's just like the life that I lived uh, when my little girls were a little bit younger, and they loved to watch, even at a very young age, even though they thought marriage was absolutely gross, thankfully. Um, they, they loved to watch romance movies, Disney movies in particular, but they loved kind of just seeing this kind of love develop, and, and this was just the way that they were. And their favorite part, even to this day, uh, of a movie is when the girl and the boy finally confess their love, or the princess walks down the aisle to marry the prince. And there's a, there's a reason that that's all of our favorite part of, of a wedding ceremony. There's this special moment, and maybe we'll even have time in a few moments to dig into this a little bit more when we get into our text. But there's this special moment when the, the, the doors open in the back, and everybody stands, and the music plays, and, and the, the woman walks down in white. And it's almost just like everything that's happening in life just kind of stands still for a moment. And no matter how attractive that person was, they are like, 
the most attractive person in that moment. It's just this glow about them, right? There's this special moment when that happens, and it's our favorite part of every wedding that takes place. But this is something that's in us in general. We just love this idea of kingdoms and building and conquering and, and, and peace, and then we also love the idea of a true relationship where we can be known and know another, and, and we call this love. And so we find hope in these things. We find hope in kings and kingdoms and, and heroes. And, and for many of us, maybe if it's identifying a sports team that we really like, and we want them to beat the villain team more than anything on planet Earth. It's all about winning and conquering and building, and it's all about love. And there's a reason that we'll watch movies that are like this and TV shows that, that kind of do these kinds of things and follow these stories. They, they give us this type of, of excitement in us. They could, might even cause you, if you've ever been in a movie, and this probably only happens in the American culture, but if you've ever been in a movie where everybody at some point starts cheering in the movie, it's like, why are we doing that? Right, like nobody's here, the actors aren't here, the produce, like nobody from this movie is here, but there's this moment in the movie where something wins or love happens and we just get really excited. There's nothing that we can do about it. It brings this moment of hope. And every once in a while in the real world, both kingdoms and love come together at one time on a large scale. And when it does, it feels like, even if you're, you don't participate in it, it feels like kind of the whole world just stops and watches. Um, the last time that, that I could really think of in the moment that this happened on a large scale where kingdom and love came together and the whole world stopped. I don't know if you remember in 2011 when um, Prince William got married. Was anybody, did anybody watch that on TV? Do you remember back that far? It's been a few years, I know. Um, but when you get my age, a decade is like a day, right? It's just kind of like you just, everything blends in together. So I remember it well. And the facts about that wedding, a thousand people came to the wedding. Uh, and you think that's pretty big. But then what, what was happening around the, the surrounding area of the wedding uh, is that over a million people gathered together in London in designated places to watch it live as it was happening. And then 37 million people stopped to watch online or on TV. And even more so in America, we're a little bit really, uh, we're pretty intrigued with this whole idea of kings and princes and all of that kind of stuff. And, and a lot of it probably has to do with, we had some issue with that whole idea of having kings a few hundred years ago. And so, uh, but we're really intrigued by it. Um, and so for us, 60 million Americans gathered around their TVs and their computers to watch Prince William's marriage. And here he is getting married and everybody's stopping and it was in the middle of the day. So a lot of that probably just had to do with any excuse not to work, right? But the world seems to stop and everybody just begins to watch. And if you watch that, it all began with just like every other wedding that like we talked about a few moments ago, a procession. And another 500,000 people gathered along the streets in London as Prince William's car came through into the city during the procession, and he was on his way to the palace where he will one day be crowned king. But in this moment, he was processioning, he was coming into the city to take his bride. And it seemed like this fairy tale type of story that only happens in the movies and only happens on TV, but all of us are intrigued about where this kingdom of the world and love come together and we all pause. It's just this hope. It's this, it's this cheeriness. It's, it's something that we long for. Well, a few years ago, I was reading a book. It's called The Stories That We Tell by Mike Cosper. And he attempts to lay out, and I think he does a really good job, I would recommend the book to you, <clears throat> why we like stories like this. And ultimately, the foundation for what he gets and digs down into is that we love stories like this of kingdoms and conquering and love and relationships uh, because it's, it's our story. More specifically... It's God's story. It is the story of Scripture. 
And if you look at scripture and you just take the overarching narrative, uh, you'll see creation. God creates and everything is good and, and we have community with him. This is what we're created to be and to know and to have, give glory to him in everything that we do. And in so doing, we have joy and everything's peaceful and life is good. We have the kingdom. We have love and community with him and one another. We understand who we are and what to do. Uh, but then after creation, we have the fall. And the fall is where we decide we want to walk away from our creator. We want to give glory and and have glory to ourselves. We want to use creation to find our identities and our joy and our longings. And and it starts messing up creation and the way we see it and use it and view it and also relationships. And so we have creation and fall, but then God does not leave us in that, he created us and designed us to have communion with him. And so he sends the son, Jesus, which we've been studying in the book of Mark. And Jesus lives for us and he dies on the cross to pay the penalty of our rebellion and sin and rises from the grave to defeat sin and death so that by his grace, through his work, we might be brought back into relationship with him through faith that he's done everything for us to have life and salvation. And then after redemption, you have restoration, which is happening and also yet to come, where everything will be made new and God will return. And and there's a new heaven and a new earth and everything is restored and every tear is wiped away. And you have kingdom and love perfectly coming together in our creator. And then he would point out that this is why we love the stories that we love. It's why almost every movie that's a major box office hit has this type of story. Everything's good and everybody's peaceful. And then some sort of chaos just rips into everybody's world. And everything just goes totally chaotic. And then a hero emerges. And the hero you kind of watch kind of develop. And, and then you have this point in the movie where you know, okay, the hero, he, the hero's going to win. Like, everything's going to be okay. And everything's going to be restored. And by the end of the movie, everything's great. Love has won the day. And whether it's the hero that conquers evil or it's the love that, that kind of conquers just the, the, the depression and the heartache or whatever's taking place throughout the story of the movie, this is the reason we love the stories we love. It's God's story. Ultimately, it's our story. It's how we fit in and how we were created. And, and we love these fairy tale types of stories, though this is not the fairy tale type of story. This isn't even describing to us God's word how we have to work really hard to build up a kingdom or to find love in the way that we desire. See, the Bible is leading to and revealing the true king and revealing the true kingdom and and his genuine love. And we're drawn to these glimpses of his story of love and redeemed kingdoms because we ultimately long for God. And that's why Jesus came. And this is what he's been revealing to us in the book of Mark. And so as we walk through the gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus. And Jesus has come and he's been preaching and teaching. And we've talked about that over the, the last handful of months and how Jesus is speaking with authorities, revealing who he is and what he's come to do. And he's demonstrating that by example through his supernatural miracles and his, his powerful works that are put on display that his words are true. And to this point, he's been in some 35 different towns, villages, small cities, and he's about to go into Jerusalem. But his whole ministry is about getting to Jerusalem, more specifically to the temple, and his dying on the cross and rising from the grave. This is what he's working towards. This is what he's moving towards. And we saw last week how he had kind of been in his last town or his last village and he had his heart set on moving towards Jerusalem and he's taking firm steps we talked about towards Jerusalem towards what he has come to do so here is the king who is bringing his kingdom who is loving us in the ultimate way who's allowing us to experience his kingdom and love with him as king not only now but for all of eternity and he is marching towards what is required for that to take place 
This beautiful moment where we're all on the edge of our seats going, okay, the the king is going to win. The kingdom is going to come. Like love is going to conquer. Like everything that we're longing for, it is going to take place. And it's not yet, but this is that moment of the story where we're going, okay, I know the hero is going to win. I can see it coming. I can see the love and it's genuine and they're going to be together. Like this is that part of the story. This is when we know that what Jesus says he is and what he's come to do will take place. And Mark gives 40% of his gospel story to the last week of Jesus' life as he's entering into Jerusalem to reveal his perfect kingdom and his perfect love. And it begins in this text with something like a procession. Something like Jesus coming in and going to the temple where he will one day be crowned king of kings and lord of lords and rule for all of eternity in his new heaven and his new earth. But in this occasion, he has come to take his bride, to bring his church to himself, to bring salvation to those who have placed their faith in him. This is the procession of our king coming into the city where he will be crowned king and he will take us for his own and give us salvation. And that's why when we read this text, there's cheering, there's laughter, there's joy, there's rejoicing. But then we're going to see that they also misunderstand a little bit. There's also some sadness here. But it's ultimately what actually has to take place for us to have the salvation that we long for. But this is the moment everybody's been waiting on. This is the moment we have lived our whole lives to understand. And this is what actually brings the happy ever after, the true kingdom and the true love. And so look with me, Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, when they had drew near, so Jesus the disciple and those that are following him from from Jericho, if you remember last week, they got to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, very important place, which we'll see in just a moment. Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches or palms that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So when we look at this prince, this king, this hero who's coming to put on display the true kingdom and make it possible, the reality of genuine love and making it possible. What is taking place here in this beautiful text that we typically only look at maybe on a Palm Sunday, uh, but we get to look at at here in June. Uh, And so we saw last week that Jesus, as I said, was on his way to Jerusalem. He is steadfastly moving. The disciples were watching him because he's displaying this courage that's unbelievable that we talked about last week. And it says that they're fearful. They're a little bit fearful that Jesus is actually going to go through with it. Like, are you serious? You're going to go to Jerusalem to die. Because we have continued to desire for you to build this earthly kingdom and to have a throne. And we're arguing over who's best and who gets to sit on your right and your left. And, and so we're a little bit afraid at this courage we're seeing and how you're saying you're going to go to Jerusalem to die for our sin. But we want you to go to Jerusalem to defeat our enemy. And little did they know that's exactly what Jesus was doing in the way that we actually needed to have everything that we long for. But they're just looking at the physical, which we so often do. And they're fearful that Jesus is actually going to go through with it. 
Now, in John's account, we see that as Jesus and the disciples are going into Jerusalem in this text, that it's actually Passover week. And Passover week was, uh, would take place once a year, and Jerusalem's population would swell. All of the Israelite people that can are going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It would be about five times or upwards of five times its normal population during this week. And so you have lots of people traveling. You have lots of roaming guards and soldiers coming in. Pilate himself would actually come to Jerusalem to be in his house in Jerusalem for the Passover week, just to kind of oversee everything, to keep the peace. And, and he was there. We'll see that in just a moment. But as all of these people would come into Jerusalem for the Passover, remember, because this is important to verse 11, that the Passover was something that was celebrated every year all the way back and started in the Exodus in the book of Exodus, when God brings his Israelite people out of the Egyptian uh, slavery, he brings them out. And the last thing that Jesus puts on display, uh, uh, the plagues in Egypt were that you were to put all the Israelites and all who believed in God were to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. We don't have time to really dig into everything that's taking place here, but just so you have a familiarity with the story, if you're unfamiliar, you would put the blood of the lamb over the door and the death angel went through Egypt that night and everyone who's had the blood of the lamb over the door and who had made the sacrifice and eaten the meal in the way that God had told them to, the death angel would pass over. But everyone who did not, the firstborn of the family would die. And this is what caused uh, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, to let the Israelite people go. It was the last straw. And the Israelite people were free after that. And they go into the wilderness. But every year, they would celebrate the Passover. They would make a sacrifice. They would remember how God had passed over. The blood would represent God postponing the judgment of sin until the Messiah comes. It's this beautiful thing that they would do every single year in Jerusalem. And so many, many people are going, including, as I said, Pilate. And Pilate, if you remember, is the one that Jesus will stand before in just a few chapters, and he will wash his hands of Jesus's execution and hand them over, hand Jesus over to the people to be crucified. But Pilate is in town because it's the Passover. And Pilate lived about 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He lived on the beach and he had Caesar's Palace at the Sea is what it was called. Now, if you go there today, it's a resort area. It's this really beautiful area on the sea. And again, I always want to point out, and this is one of the reasons, and some of you might find it a little bit painful to go through his, historically what's taking place, but I want to tie what's happening in scripture to history. And I, and I believe that we need to do that to understand how it affects us today and to really understand what's taking place in God's word. And so Pilate would live about 60 miles away to the west. He would come into Jerusalem through the west gate. And that's important for us to know as we see what Jesus does when he enters into Jerusalem in our text. And as he would come in through the west gate from the sea, from the palace, he would come in riding on a war horse and he would be fully, have his full getup on and, and metal armor. And they would be carrying the pole with the, the eagle on the top to represent Rome. And they comes in with just pomp and, and success. And, and he just comes in and you just know he's got power and he is going to keep the peace or at least the peace, the oppression that looks like peace in a, in a city. And this is why the Roman guard would be there. And this is why he would come. And so he comes marching into Jerusalem, full armor, Roman eagle on the pole. It's pageantry at its best. He wants everyone to see him, everyone to see or believe that he has power over them. He wants to control the narrative. And then you have Jesus. And Jesus is just a few miles away in Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it looks over Jerusalem and you can kind of see everything and you can see the temple. It's a very significant mountain, which we don't have time to get into this morning. But to say, because I think that we need to know this for our text, in 586 B.C., 
When the Babylonians took over Jerusalem and the Israelite people and they went into a period of captivity, God had given a prophecy to Ezekiel. And the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of God rise up out of the temple in Jerusalem and depart from Jerusalem through, get this, the east gate of the city and come down to rest on the Mount of Olives. So Ezekiel has this vision, this prophecy from God that the Babylonians are going to come in and and take the Israelite people into captivity and the spirit of God, the presence of God, who is with his people in the Old Testament is going to come out of the temple, go through the east gate to the east onto the Mount of Olives and rest there for a time. And now we have in our text Jesus overlooking the city and the temple from the Mount of Olives, the presence of God, bringing his presence to the place, processioning into Jerusalem, where he will go to the temple, declaring to be king and doing what is required to bring peace and prosperity and joy and salvation and genuine love to his people as king. This is the setting of what is taking place as Jesus is preparing to enter from the Mount of Olives, which is from the east of the city, overlooking Jerusalem. And so he tells two disciples, go and get a colt, a donkey, a small donkey who's never been ridden on, which was really important because a king in this first century and, and even before, uh, you would only ride on a horse or a donkey that had not been ridden by others. I'm sure they had rules that allowed it to be broken in first, which this colt is not, uh, because God, Jesus is the creator of all of creation, and colts follow and obey him. And Jesus even says in this text that if the people do not cry out, Hosanna, the rocks will begin to cry out, Hosanna, in the book of Luke. This is a moment that all of creation, Romans 1, has been waiting for and groaning for and desiring and longing for not only the king of a nation, but the king of all creation to come and to restore. And so Jesus says, go get this colt that has never been ridden. And that seems weird to me. Like here you have... Pilate, and he's coming in, showing his reign and rule, demonstrating his power, pageantry at its best, pomp at its highest. And here comes Jesus, and he's like, just go and get me a donkey. Right? And, and what on earth is the purpose of that? Pilate gets a horse, and Jesus comes into the city into the temple to establish his kingdom, reveal he is king, save his people, the hero that we need. Maybe not the one that we all wanted, which we'll see in our text and we've seen throughout the book of Mark. It's not the God that we would create or design in and of ourselves, but it's actually the God that we need. The God that can actually bring salvation. Why? On a colt. It's important that Jesus actually comes on a colt We see throughout the the last chapters of the book of Mark and and throughout the other gospel stories that Jesus actually fulfills 300 Old Testament prophecies, many of which in the last week of his life, he fulfills every Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah coming, dying, and rising. And this is one of those here in this moment. 500 years before Jesus would stand on the Mount of Olives and overlook Jerusalem and send the disciples in to find this colt, it would be said in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so people are starting to hear this, like Jesus has been marching towards Jerusalem. Everywhere it goes are crowds of people just like in Jericho. They're wanting to be saved and be healed. The story is spreading that he just healed this blind man who called him son of David. That rings a bell in the Old Testament. And so now Jesus is in the Mount of Olives. They're thinking Ezekiel and the Spirit of God leaving the city to rest on the Mount of Olives. And here's Jesus and he is coming into the city and people are starting to hear about this. Jesus is coming. 
And, and get this, he's riding on a donkey and suddenly word begins to spread. Oh, it's that day. It's that day we've been waiting on where, where this story has been happening and all of these things have been taking place and we're, we're longing in the, the midst of this chaos for the hero to emerge and, and for love to begin to be put on display and everything that we're longing for to be, be clear that, that the good will win and that salvation will come and his kingdom will reign. And, and they're going, is, is this the moment? Is this the moment that makes it certain? Is this is the moment that, that kind of brings cheer up in our hearts, a hope of a kingdom and a love that we all desire. See, this is one of the reasons we love weddings so much. It echoes the gospel. As Jesus is coming into the city to take for himself his bride. And so people are getting excited. The Roman rulers are getting a little bit nervous. And, and, and it's heightened emotion and it's heightened expectation everywhere around Jesus. And so the disciples go into the city, and the first thing that we notice is that the cult is actually there. That can be something that we easily just kind of go over, but here's Jesus. He hasn't gone into Jerusalem. He hasn't sent his disciples in already, but Jesus, knowing that he is going to fulfill prophecy and that all the prophecy needs to be fulfilled, he tells these two disciples to go into the city. There will be a cult there, right there. It will be noticeable. Go there and take that and say this, and then the disciples go in, and the cult is actually there. The second thing that we need to see is the disciples just walk right over and start taking it. And if you just put yourself in their shoes just for a moment, you've got to be a little bit nervous about this. Like here's, Jesus has been doing a lot of cool things. He said a lot of cool things, but man, he's been with us when stuff like this has gone down. Um, and, and now he's not here. He's told us to come in and do this. What he told us to say seems a little weak, honestly. Um, and so they're, they're probably just trying to be unnoticed. Just kind of like sneak over and like it, they feel like they're stealing something. And so they're going over to the colt. They untie the colt and lo and behold... Somebody says something to them. Hey, what are you doing? Right? Which makes total sense. Why are you taking my cold? And so they try out what Jesus told them to try out. Right? In verse 5, some people ask them there, what are you doing? And so they just say what Jesus told them to say. And they're like, um, <clears throat> uh, Jesus said to tell you the Lord has need of it. That's all they say. And it works. Right? Like this, is, this is unbelievable. Like Jesus has been demonstrating who he is. He's been showing all of these kinds of things. He's beginning to fulfill all of these prophecies. He tells them to go in. The cult is there. They go up to the cult, little nervous, take the cult. They're asked this question. They say, the Lord has need of it. And this is a test for these two disciples and for us to realize is Jesus really who he says he is? Now, he has given example after example to demonstrate his power and who he is. He has been speaking about who he is, but in everything he does, it just exudes that he is God. And this is another example of that. So many times I'll hear Jesus never really said that he was God. And though he actually clearly does, he also demonstrates it in all sorts of of ways, and this is one of them. There's a couple of things that this shows us that these disciples go in, ask for this colt, and they give him the colt at the Lord's name. The first thing that we have to see is that this word Lord there is kurios in the Greek, and what it means, and it can be used as the word sir or master, but the context in which it's used here is the supreme ruler. Curios, the supreme ruler, the God of creation, this is actually his cult. That's what they're saying. The Curios, the Lord supreme, the, the ruler of all of creation, he needs this cult. So what they're saying is God who created the cult, created you, gave us this land, everything that we experience, that God needs this cult on this moment. And so when the men question the disciples and they ask them and they, they give this 
cult to the disciples, what they are realizing is something that would take place in the first century. And, and today, even, we have this idea of eminent domain, right? They had it to a much lesser degree. Um, but one of the things that you could do if you were a king or a ruler, certainly if you are the supreme ruler, God of all of creation, and everything is yours to begin with and is given for people to steward and to give him glory with, then these men realize this is a part of eminent domain. And what you would actually be able to do as a king is one of the things is that you could go anywhere that you wanted and commandeer any beast of burden that you desired, a horse, a donkey whatever you may need. And so Jesus is exercising the right as king, as creator of everything. These men recognize that, and so they immediately just say, okay, that's good enough for us, right? And, and, and if we just take a, a little bit of a side moment here, I love how these men just hear that the Lord Supreme God creator is in need of this thing that he has given you to steward for his glory. And they're just like, good enough for us. Everything I have, open hands. If he needs it and he wants it, that is great. Take the donkey. You can use it. It's all yours. And I just think to myself, what if followers of Jesus today believe? that he was the supreme God of everything that we have and we do not have to build our own kingdoms but his kingdom has come down and we are to be a citizen of it and we are to find our joy and life and happiness in it and everything that he gives us is for his glory to reveal his kingdom with him as king because of his love for us and we can put that on display with everything that we had and when he says this is to be used for my glory what if we use it for his glory. These men just give up this cult. But the question still remains, why the cult? Why a donkey at all? And, and, and why the prophecy that Jesus would come in in Zechariah on a donkey? Well, this was not an uncommon thing. And this is, again, history that we need to understand. This isn't an uncommon thing for a king to do. In fact, it's said throughout history that King David would often ride through the city of Jerusalem on a donkey in times of peace. In times of war, he would come through on a war horse and he would demonstrate power and victory. And, and he is going to stand up for the people and bring them out of whatever oppression it is and defeat the enemy to protect the kingdom. But in times of peace, he would come riding through on a donkey and it would just give peace and security to the people of Jerusalem. David's on a donkey. We're in a time of peace. We're in a time of joy. We're in a time of celebration. And this is what this would put on display for Jesus. It, it also fulfills prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 750 years before Jesus would do so, before the Messiah would come in peace, it says, Behold the King of peace, the Savior who is coming to serve and to fulfill us, will come into the city bringing peace. And that is revealed when Jesus rides in on the colt. See, one day, just like Prince William, one day maybe, will go towards the palace in procession to be made king. Jesus is coming for his bride in this moment, but one day he will return. Here he comes on a donkey bringing peace and salvation to his people. But one day, Revelation 19, 11, he will return on a horse. It says, then I saw, Revelation 19, 11, then I saw the heavens open and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, capital F, capital T. He is faithfulness. He is truth. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like fire, flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written that no one knows but himself. It's too good. But in this instance, he comes to serve to bring peace, riding on a donkey. 
And so in verse 7, when he begins to walk towards the city, all of this are the things that we need to understand. And no, this, this is what makes the moment big. This is what makes the moment the moment of truth where everything that we've hoped for, everything that we long for, it's going to be fulfilled. And we need to understand that. We need to see the whole movie so we understand the power of the moment. And so the disciples actually take their cloaks off and cloaks in the first century were prized possessions for any individual person. A lot of them would take two around because if you were stranded somewhere and didn't have somewhere to sleep, you would sleep on a cloak, you would cover up with a cloak, but the cloak was used for so many different things in the first century. That's why it's so beautiful last week when the blind man throws his cloak away to, to, to get away everything that's keeping him from Jesus and he just walks towards Jesus, my prized possession thrown to the side. Jesus is everything. He's everything that I want to see. And we made the challenge, what is it that is keeping you from seeking and pursuing Jesus with all that you are? You see, the disciples put this prized possession on the donkey for Jesus to sit on. And here's what I quickly want us to see here. Not everybody knows who Jesus is. Not everybody knows and understands what Jesus has done. But the disciples bear witness to who Jesus is through the colt and putting their cloak on the donkey. And the people that Jesus walks towards will follow the example because the disciples revealed he is the king. He's worthy of your cloak. If you don't have one, he's worthy of the palm branch. And because the disciples put on display that Jesus is king and he is worth it all and he has come to put on display the true love that we long for, then the people begin to follow. And this is the example that the church is to give witness of, that Jesus is the king, that he is love, that he did die, that he did rise, that he is everything that we long for. And we lay everything down at his feet. We hold everything he has given us with open hands. It is all for his glory and to reveal his goodness and his kingdom kingdom with him as king and his love and so I follow him and he is worth everything and listen to me when we do that many people will follow many people will know who Jesus is and so Jesus begins this procession to the temple which is so important he's not just going into Jerusalem he is but he's going to the temple Malachi 3.1 tells us that the Lord will come to his temple in Jerusalem when he arrives. This is what the Messiah will do 500 years before Jesus would do it. And the key for us to see here in Luke 19.41, Luke actually begins to tell us that as Jesus drew near to the city, he began to weep over it. He said, would that you have known the things of this day that bring peace. What have you have known me? What have you not have walked away from me? He looked at the city and he began to weep. And we need to see this really quickly as we come to a close in this passage, because we need to see the compassion of the true king in his bringing of the kingdom, the passion to reveal his kingdom and the love for his people. See, we are a broken people and we are weeping over broken things and we are pursuing broken dreams and we are worshiping counterfeit gods by nature. We make sacrifices to gods that do not actually have the ability and power to save nor the compassion to care. But Jesus here has revealed and will reveal that he has all power over all of creation and everyone listens to his voice when he has need of anything that he has created, but he also has the compassion and love to heal the sinner. See, this is the problem of every single one of our hearts. This is the deepest problem of our culture. Oftentimes we will say the deepest problems that we have are this cultural belief or this ideology or this political thing, strategy over here. But no, 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 no. Those are symptoms. The deepest problem is our hearts. And we need a king who has the power to heal them, but the compassion, the love to actually desire it.
And here he begins to show that he's the only one that can heal the broken heart and that we should bow down to him and place our cloaks before him, that he is everything that we desire. And so he enters into the city and everybody's laying their cloaks down. They're, they're following the example. They're, they're laying down the palm branches. And this had actually taken place twice in history before. So the people know exactly what they think they are doing. They believe that Jesus is going to come in just like Pilate just came in. He's going to procession into the city and he's going to bring this, this huge just kind of battle that's going to take place. At some point, tensions are high. Excitement is there because here's the king we've been waiting on. And they're thinking he's just like the kings of old that they've laid cloaks down and palm branches for before. See, Jehu in the Old Testament, when Ahab was king and the worst king in all of the Old Testament, Jehu took over. And as he comes out of his house, when the prophet said, you're taking over as king, people laid down palm branches for him to walk on because they were so excited that Ahab was going to be replaced. And then just a couple of generations before Jesus, Simon Maccabee, which you can read in the intertestamental time, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's still a lot of things that took place. And they're not in Scripture, but there is historically still some battle going on between the Israelite people in Jerusalem and the Romans who rule. And Simon Maccabee led this revolt against those who were taking over and oppressing the Israelite people. And as he won the battle and pushed people out, they laid palm branches before his feet. This is the king. He's going to come and, and lift us out of oppression. And he's going to reign and rule and he's going to set up this earthly kingdom. This is what they believed. Kingdom and love are going to meet physically in this moment, and it would, but they missed the actual point of salvation. They missed everything that they need and everything that Jesus has come to do at the soul, eternal level to meet the biggest problem of our hearts. And so they cry out in verse 10, blessed is the coming king, the father, David, the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, which means save us, rescue us, provide for us. Salvation has come. Psalm 118, 25 to 26 actually tells us about this. It's a song that would often be sung during the Passover time. In fact, in the first century, as you were traveling to the Passover, you would begin to sing this song. And then when the Messiah or the king would come into a city, having had victory, they would go to the temple. This is normal that what Jesus is doing. But the priests and the people would follow the king or the ruler to the temple. And then the priest would say a blessing over this ruler who has conquered and lifted his people up. And, and this is huge for us to realize in this text because it doesn't happen but to this point, everything is going as planned. But, but then Psalm 118, 118, 25, and 26 would be the song that they would sing, the hero's welcome. He would come in. Everybody would follow. The priest would give a blessing at the temple, something like this. God has used you. God has preserved us. God has given us victory. God has watched over us. And then they would feast and sing this song. That was the custom. So the people are all excited. They're throwing down their cloaks and their palm branches. But this is a little bit different. Here's the Messiah coming in. But they miss the point. As soon as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, here come the Pharisees. And they always get it wrong. But they do get an A for consistency. They walk up to Jesus, and we can so easily do this in our lives, either irreligiously or religiously. We, we just think, Jesus, this isn't how I would do it, right? Like taking off your cloak in church is not okay, right? This isn't what we would do. This isn't how we would do it. The irreligious people, this isn't the God that I would create. You're, you're wanting me to put my cloak down and give up something I find life in. And so we see it from opposite perspectives, the irreligious and the religious, but both the religious and the irreligious often miss salvation. They miss the king. Lou tells us that instead of following them to the temple to bless them, they call Jesus out. Hey, why are you letting people do this? Like, this is, this is not right. Only the Messiah is worthy of this type of treatment. 
They're so stubborn, they just miss it all. They're so caught up in their vision of what God would be that they miss God right in front of them. Don't do that, church. And so instead of everyone following them to the temple, Jesus goes to the temple by himself. Only he can do what he's about to do. Only he can do what needs to be done and what is required to actually save. And in this moment, he is all alone. If he is going to bring the kingdom that is eternal, he cannot be crowned king physically in this moment. He has come to do what only he can. But his kingdom is coming The procession into the city at this moment would mean that our salvation is sure. And so even though everybody misses it, we able to look back 2,000 years on this moment should see it as the moment that Christ's salvation, his kingdom, his kingship is all going to take place and we can trust it. This is the moment of excitement that's coming up when the two people that are in love are about to meet and they've been going all their different directions in the movie, but now they're coming together. This is the moment that the king is going into the, this is the brave heart speech. Like, okay, everything's going to be okay. Like, I don't know how it's all going to end up, but this moment happens. And so everything is going to take place, but they miss it. They miss that there's no need for the Passover later that week because the, the lamb who would make a sacrifice once and for all had entered into the city. And just like a worship service that we might come to on a Sunday morning where we worship the king, then they just disperse back to real life like they didn't have any idea of who they were just worshiping. So often this defines the church. They wanted a king that comes into the town like Pilate to bring a kingdom, and we'll throw our cloaks down for that. But as soon as Jesus reveals himself to be what is needed for a real kingdom and true love, it costs too much. When we look at this text, and Jesus goes to the temple alone, he will go back to Bethany He will return into Jerusalem. He will come in power. We see in verse 11, he walks into the temple, into the inner gate where the Gentiles were actually able to go, which we'd have to go through to get to the inner gates. And in the outer gates, we'll see over the next couple of weeks where Jesus turns the tables in the temples. He calls it it, to be a house of prayer. And the reason that he would do that is during the Passover week, Josephus, a historian in this time, would tell us that in the outer circle of the temple at any given point, there would be hundreds and hundreds of, of people who were selling lambs and other things to sacrifice. And over 255,000 lambs would be sold in a given Passover week in the temple. And as Jesus looks at this and all of these lambs, he knows, I'm the only one that can save. And this is what he has come to do. Listen to me, there are lots of stories, but there's only one true story that brings salvation and love. 